Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mindlessly, I put on my armor. For reason, had little use for armor. But my heart was burning to gather comrades for battle. Frenzy and anger drove me on, and suddenly it seemed a noble thing to die in arms. Virgil's Aeneid, Book 2 On the 19th of May 1630, Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden embarked on the campaign that would cement his legend and create an empire. By July the 3rd he captured Stettin, the capital city of Pomerania, along the Baltic coast of northern Germany. Having declared war throughout June on Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor, and his allies, including Spain, he fortified his defences, welcoming with open arms the troops who had taken part in the Siege of Stralsund and awaited the opportunity to make his next move. Having acquired this bridgehead from where he could launch attacks in the future, Gustavus concerned himself with consolidation, recruitment, and acquiring winter quarters. The commander of the force left behind by Wallenstein that was meant to contain Gustavus elected to sit back and wait rather than make an early attack against the Swede. He would also have been informed of the goings-on in the city of Regensburg, where Ferdinand had called the various imperial princes and reps together for a meeting. It was at this meeting, if you recall from the last episode, that the Generalissimo of Ferdinand's imperial army, Wallenstein, was dismissed by the end of August. Geoffrey Parker, in his book The Thirty Years' War, notes on the background of these events, and paints a grim picture for the Holy Roman Empire. Quote, Instead of solving the problems confronting Empire and Emperor in 1630, the Regensburg electoral meeting had only made them worse. By sacrificing Wallenstein, Ferdinand lost the one man whose ability and power might conceivably have enabled him to consolidate his recent gains and unite a weak and divided Germany under a strong Habsburg monarchy. By retaining the Edict of Restitution, the Emperor and the League princes further alienated the North German electors thereby exacerbating existing Protestant-Catholic divisions. The events at Regensburg had, in effect, created a power vacuum. 
no one was now in control of the empire. End quote. France sent a party of diplomats to the emperor in the summer of 1630 to settle a few niggling issues, mostly concerning the recent Franco-Spanish conflict in northern Italy, where the Valtelline, Montferrat and Mantua still evoked strong emotions for both states. The status of who owned what was highly contested, and the French king Louis XIII really wanted Ferdinand to recognise the French claim and the rights of their claimant, the Duke of Nevers, to the region after the ruling dynasty had died out. While negotiations were ongoing though, news came that on the 18th of July Mantua had been occupied by troops loyal to Ferdinand, since they were very much involved in the quarrel too, and the French candidate, the Duke of Nevers, had been among those captured and was now at the mercy of Habsburg mercy. The French delegation thus panicked and asked for those in power back home in Paris to conduct a settlement with the Habsburgs before more damage could be done. But no reply from Paris came, and so by October the delegation reluctantly signed a treaty which promised the French an imperial evacuation of northern Italy. Additionally, the French delegates agreed to refrain from offering support to anyone that opposed the Emperor Ferdinand. When Louis discovered what had been done by these French envoys, he was beyond livid, and sent a strongly worded letter to them. This treaty is not only contrary to your powers, to the orders and the instructions you took with you, and to those I have sent you at various times since, but it even contains several items which I have never even thought about, and they are so prejudicial that I could never hear them read aloud to me, except with extreme displeasure. Cardinal Richelieu, essentially the Prime Minister of France at this time, also seriously disproved of what was being called the Treaty of Regensburg, because, he said, all foreign nations will regard an alliance with us as useless because of our unreliability, and will think that they can no longer find security except with Spain. Louis himself was extremely embarrassed, and his manipulative mother, Mary de' Medici, now saw her chance to rid the French court of the king's good friend and crucial statesman, Cardinal Richelieu. David Milland, author of the book Europe at War, 1600-1650, takes particular time to emphasise the character of the French king, noting that, quote, Louis respected Richelieu's ability, his loyalty and his indefatigable service but he was a weak, indecisive man. His lonely and neglected childhood had left him particularly dependent upon the affection and support of others, and left him vulnerable to the violent clash of temperaments generated at court and within his family. During the summer and autumn of 1630, Louis's prolonged sickness kept him apart from his minister, and exposed him to a determined attempt by Marie de' Medici to reassert her authority. End quote. Marie advocated a complete U-turn from the previous French foreign policy, and she tied herself to the extremist Catholic faction within the French court, and then forced Louis to choose between herself and Richelieu while the two of them were in the same room. Louis, fearful of confrontation and apparently also awkward moments, could have done one of two things, a side with his mother and rid the court of Richelieu's influence, thus plunging the French court and its foreign policy into the doldrums of before, or b. side with Richelieu and rid the court instead of his mother's meddling ways and her allies. David Milland, in his book Europe at War 1600-1650, explains what happened next. Quote, 
On the 10th of November 1630, after a violent and emotional scene such as the king had always dreaded, in which Richelieu and Marie confronted each other in his presence, it seemed that the cardinal was defeated. Louis appointed Mariac, Marie's nominee, to command the army in Italy, and retired to his hunting lodge in Versailles, leaving his queen mother and her delighted followers to celebrate their triumph. But they deceived themselves. Louis had fled only to escape his mother's hysteria, and, safe in Versailles, he ordered Mariac's arrest. End quote. This so-called Day of the Dupes was a very unexpected act from the French king, but it succeeded so well because it brought his enemies and his mother's allies out into the open, where he could then prosecute them with the full force of his authority. His mother and her mean friends were ousted, and Louis and Richelieu could now properly reconstruct French foreign policy, starting with the disaster in northern Italy. However, Geoffrey Parker provides an interesting angle on these events, particularly by noting how the French diplomatic fiasco at Regensburg and the Swedish invasion overlapped. Quote, And yet, in the long term, French diplomacy could hardly have been more successful. By appearing to agree at Regensburg and then reneging, France caused far more damage to the imperial cause than refusal at the outset would have done. Temporarily fortified by Louis' apparent withdrawal from the struggle, Ferdinand not only declined to moderate the terms of the Edict of Restitution, but decided that he alone could tackle the small Swedish army, which Gustavus Adolphus led ashore on the 3rd of July 1630, without any attempt to render his policies more acceptable to the German Protestants. It was a fatal miscalculation, for, by the time the imperialists realised that their troops could no longer be withdrawn from Italy, the Swedes could no longer be dislodged from Pomerania. End quote. By November 1630, Ferdinand II thus had a Swedish army to contend with in the north of his lands, but he also now had to bear witness to a new phase of Protestant unity, composed of the former acquaintances John George of Saxony and George William of Brandenburg. George William and John George have been encountered before in previous episodes, so hopefully this tidal wave of names is relatively easy to wrap your head around. Just to recap, Saxony and Brandenburg were the two remaining Protestant electors in the HRE. The third would have been the Palatinate had it, and its leader Frederick, not been ousted at the beginning of our narrative, way back in 1620. Frederick still had to satisfy himself with viewing events from his exile in The Hague, but Saxony and Brandenburg were being forced towards a more proactive direction. In April 1630, the two electors met to discuss recent political developments and the incoming meeting at Regensburg, which was due to happen in the summer, and which we already know resulted in the dismissal of Wallenstein. George William's advisers in Brandenburg wanted to take a more definite stand against the Emperor, and even mentioned a Protestant alliance, but this talk was quashed by John George of Saxony's more conservative advisers with the result that the two merely agreed that they wouldn't attend Regensburg in person as a form of protest to the Emperor for the Edict of Restitution. By the time the two electors met again in September of that year, though, John George of Saxony's tone had notably changed. He no longer felt as confident in Saxony's security. This is outlined by Geoffrey Parker. Quote, John George of Saxony was deeply disturbed by the Swedish invasion and the proceedings at Regensburg particularly the Catholics' uncompromising stand on the Edict of Restitution. And this provided the Brandenburgers with an ideal opportunity to resubmit their proposals and receive a more favourable response. William's privy councillors 
who were already advocating a more resolute position vis-à-vis the emperor, now called for a similar strategy towards the Swedish king. Indeed, their Swedish policy must be seen as the direct corollary of their imperial policy, both aimed to preserve the integrity and constitution of the empire in general, and the rights and liberties of the German states in particular. Both were designed to create a neutral third force between the king and emperor to keep the war from spreading further. End quote. John George of Saxony appeared to approve these moves, if they were based on defence only, but he was swayed by his advisers to talk to Ferdinand also. Upon talking to Ferdinand, John George was told that concessions on the Edict of Restitution, the main reason he and his ally Brandenburg were up in arms in the first place, would be forthcoming in another meeting, planned for mid-1631. However, Brandenburg's advisers had moved first, and promoted a Protestant-only meeting in Leipzig for early 1631. The Leipzig meeting was very well attended. Even some imperial free cities went to see what the fuss was all about, and John George of Saxony was persuaded to attend by the Brandenburg argument that, even if no alliance is signed, at least we, the two Protestant electors, need to devise a joint strategy for Ferdinand's proposed meeting in mid-1631, whenever that takes place. In the backdrop of Swedish military activity then, the Protestant powers met at Leipzig to discuss, first and foremost, their own security. The talks didn't move very far though, with Saxon officials mainly wanting to talk solely about preparations for the meeting proposed by Ferdinand, which would take place in Frankfurt, but a Brandenburg proposal began to gain ground. This was the so-called Leipzig Manifesto, finally issued by the princes on the 12th of April 1631 which outlined plans for the creation of a defensively-minded army raised by Protestant potentates in the empire to be 40,000 men strong. It was supposed to provide a clear warning to Ferdinand that those Protestants who had participated in its creation were not willing to be occupied or subjected to his brand of aggressive Catholicism, and that they would use this force to fight if necessary. But it was also a message to Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden. Geoffrey Parker notes its significance. Quote, the Leipzig Manifesto was an 11th hour attempt to protect the religious and political interests of the Protestant rulers. It served a clear notice on Ferdinand and his allies that the Protestant princes would resist military occupation and further re-Catholicization. It also warned Gustavus Adolphus that the electors of Brandenburg and Saxony would not willingly become his allies. In short, the Manifesto sought to defend the constitution of the Holy Roman Empire by creating a neutral third force between the Imperial and the foreign armies whose aggression threatened to turn the war in Central Europe into a major international conflict. End quote. But the Protestant electors weren't the only ones becoming wary of the situation. In the summer of 1630, Maximilian of Bavaria, the primary profiteer of the events of the Thirty Years' War up to 1625, was becoming concerned at the widening of the conflict. He desired peace so as to maintain his new acquisitions in the Palatinate, but this was difficult to achieve while he supported the Edict of Restitution, alienating him from any potential Protestant princes, and as French hostility to the Habsburgs grew, making the geographical positioning of the French next to Bavaria particularly worrying to Max. Franco-Bavarian relations had endured up to 1627, when they'd been cut off owing to both sides' unwillingness to give ground. The French wanted Max to set up a multi-faith army within the HRE, and use it to balance out Wallenstein's powerful army at the time, while Max merely wanted the French to secure his lands and titles. 
All the while, Richelieu saw the opportunities in Bavarian negotiations because they had the potential to weaken Ferdinand, especially if Max could be led away from his former master or even made neutral by some form of pressure. Richelieu could sense that the winds were changing again in 1629, and sent his agent Charnace, who we encountered in the previous episode, to Munich, the capital of Bavaria. Geoffrey Parker explains what came of this. Quote, For a while it looked as if once more the talks would lead nowhere, and Charnace moved on. However, by October 1630, Bavaria was now ready to discuss the alliance seriously. There were several reasons for this change of heart. One was Maximilian's fear that Spain had secretly promised Charles I of England both that the Palatinate and the electoral title would soon be restored to Frederick. Another was the deepening political crisis in the empire. Fear of Wallenstein and opposition to involvement in Mantua were now replaced by fear of Gustavus Adolphus. Although the extent of Sweden's involvement in the war was not immediately evident, Gustavus's presence on German soil, perceived as a serious threat to the imperial constitution and to Bavaria's interests, inexorably pushed Maximilian into the direction of a French alliance. End quote. This bizarre diplomacy between the two, who really should have been enemies by default because of their allies if nothing else, would in fact bear fruit, albeit secret fruit. The Treaty of Fontainebleau was signed between France and Bavaria in total secrecy in May 1631. Seen as the Bavarian or Catholic answer to the Leipzig Manifesto, it promised that both parties would not attack each other or assist each other's enemies, and it was due to last for eight years. The problems with this treaty are immediately obvious, but it went deeper than its visible contradictions on the surface. The treaty did not mention or address any princes in the empire. It was between France and Bavaria only. Fontainebleau was simply unworkable for clear reasons which will become even clearer in the future. But just keep it in the back of your mind for now, that France and Bavaria are supposedly allies, and that they're not meant to have friends that were the other's enemies. Richelieu had in fact already been working hard to contradict this treaty, elevating his level of diplomacy to Bismarckian in the process. It wasn't just the fact that in January 1631, Richelieu, due to a potent combination of frustration with the progress in Italy and Maximilian's stonewalling, as well as his own pragmatic realism, signed an alliance with Sweden in the Treaty of Barwald. It was the fact that Gustavus Adolphus, readying himself to pounce upon the empire, began announcing this alliance to everyone. By the time Max got word of it, he would surely have been left scratching his head. One wonders what would have occurred had Gustavus Adolphus invaded Bavaria, thus forcing Richelieu to choose between his two contradictory treaties he had created. As it turned out, a little spoiler, that question would not be left to alternative historians after all. The Swedish storm was about to move south. Gustavus Adolphus didn't arrive in Pomerania with the express intention of plunging the HRE into a greater war. We keep talking of this feared Swedish invasion, but the reality was that no matter how idealistic, Gustavus would have needed real justification for invading the empire, not just on moral, but also on practical grounds. He issued his Declaration in June 1630, and ensured it was the most widely distributed pamphlet of the time, printed in five languages and 23 editions. Within this declaration, Gustavus notes his grievances, which appeared reasonable even in the circumstances of the time. Gustavus complained that 
His Majesty of Sweden has suffered many outrages and injuries without being able to receive any satisfaction for them, such as having his letters intercepted, opened, falsely deciphered and interpreted. It went above letters, of course. He also complained that Wallenstein, acting under the Emperor's authority, had sent military force to aid the Poles in their war against Sweden. He then added both his and his Scandinavian rival, Christian of Denmark's, misgivings regarding the Habsburg's Baltic design that had forced his hand, he claimed, at the Siege of Stralsund. The Habsburgs' plans for supremacy in the Baltic were directed at Sweden, and Gustavus, as its sovereign, could not tolerate such a reduction in his kingdom's security. Only at the very end of his declaration does Gustavus actually mention the Protestant princes of the empire. Yet he fails to mention, in every reprinted edition of the pamphlet, either his end goals, or how he plans to rectify the German troubles. Gustavus knew full well the importance of appealing to the German prince's constitutionally trained minds. He knew that a more religious crusade would not appeal to them, bar a very select few, and he knew that, because of this, he would have to present his cause as a purely just one. Gustavus appears to have been genuinely sore about imperial intervention in his Polish wars, although he achieved successes and his state managed to emerge strong enough to embark upon this newest adventure, he had also suffered defeats, some of which still stung hard enough in his mind that the cause of revenge against the Imperials did in fact serve as a primary motive. Whatever his motives though, his concerns resembled those of Christian IV of Denmark five years before. The Imperials, under Wallenstein, stronger than ever after defeating Denmark, were only halted from entering the Baltic by a joint multinational effort. The Habsburg threat to Swedish security was very real. It was no fabrication or excuse to invade the empire proper. There was no doubt in Gustavus's mind about this, and he felt like he could feel the eyes of Ferdinand constantly watching him, especially after the wars with his brother-in-law, the King of Poland, and especially now that, having occupied parts of Prussia and Pomerania, he was technically within the lands of the Holy Roman Empire. Gustavus's critical problem was his lack of allies, and this was the reason why he didn't simply march down from Pomerania in 1630 while Ferdinand and the princes were debating Wallenstein at Regensburg. Despite the dangers his new force posed, Gustavus could not maintain his army indefinitely within the empire alone. He needed allies, both monetary and military, in order to ensure his campaign didn't resemble the Danish effort in other forms as well. Part of this ally search had been fulfilled by Russia. We examined in the last episode how surprisingly active Russia was diplomatically, but it also supported Gustavus practically too. Porshnev's book that we encountered last time, Muscovy and Sweden in the Thirty Years' War, 1630-1635, went into great detail about the negotiations between the two, and also provided a detailed general overview of the political situation in Europe at the time. We're going to continue looking at some of Porshnev's book here too. Porshnev reminds us this time about the significance of the Thirty Years' War, in particular the way the armies were composed. Quote, in the history of warfare, the Thirty Years' War marks the high point in the development of the mercenary system. In economic history, this means that unprecedented masses of men were drawn into action through the power of money. In other words, the Thirty Years' War was a war of financial resources. End quote. Porshnev then outlines a new idea for us to grasp. 
We, of course, are familiar with the concept of mercenaries, but taking this even further, Portionev argues that states like Denmark, but also like Sweden, were made into mercenaries themselves, by way of extensive subsidies sent to them by their allies. Quote, A specific feature of the Thirty Years' War was that the powers who possessed the greatest potential fought not so much overtly as covertly through giving subsidies. They financed both large-scale mercenaries, such as Mansfield, who operated in Germany, and entire states who assumed the role of mercenary, such as Denmark and Sweden. Both Denmark and Sweden had, of course, their own reasons for seeing the empire as a foe, but they were able to fight that foe only thanks to subsidies received from other states. End quote. Portionev then underlines this key concept by examining Sweden and its dependence on its allies which he explains enabled that country to conduct its campaign in the empire. Quote, Sweden went to war against the empire in June 1630. In every textbook, one can read that Gustavus Adolphus fought, basically, with French money, which Richelieu began paying him in 1631. One million Paris livres, i.e. about 400,000 Reichsthalers annually, on condition that he maintained in Germany an army of no fewer men than 36,000. In fact, Sweden, whose original territory then supported a population of no larger than 900,000, couldn't even think of waging independently a major European war. Commodity money relations were so poorly developed in Sweden that even at the end of the 16th century the bulk of the state's revenues were received not in money but in kind. A special sort of tax in kind was levied in the form of military service by Sweden's peasants which distinguished the Swedish military system from that of other European states with more developed market relations. Gustavus Adolphus changed fundamentally how the mainly barter economy of Sweden worked once he came to power. The capture of foreign lands and ports helped, of course, because it enabled a larger amount of cash to come into the country, and thus put actual money in the hands of his citizens. In 1613, for example, the income of the Swedish state was 600,000 silver thalers. In 1632, it was 3,189,000. But the increased income belied the fact that Sweden was spending more than it took in, and this explains the crucial aspect of subsidies, particularly the French subsidies, which, Borshnev explains, quote, made up a quarter of Sweden's state budget and an even larger proportion of the specifically military section of the budget. The idea that Sweden fought in Germany to a substantial degree on French money and was, in that sense, France's mercenary, is perfectly correct. For France, with its highly developed finances, the sum paid to the Swedes constituted an incomparably smaller relative amount. In 1631, no more than one-fiftieth of the entire state budget. End quote. Gustavus also made tremendous profit selling Russia's only available export, grain, which was heavily and generally subsidised by Russia to Sweden on the International Grain Exchange in Amsterdam. Gustavus went on to control and manipulate grain prices through speculation, so that by 1632 Sweden was making far more out of its Russian contributions than Tsar Michael may have realised. But Gustavus was running out of time. By March 1631 he had survived the winter in relative security, but his supplies were almost dry. And the financial costs of supporting an army, now 70,000 men in total, were proving impossible. Gustavus's immediate cash flow problems would have likely spelled disaster for his entire enterprise, 
had the money from the treaty just signed with France in January not begun to filter in. 400,000 thalers were given to Gustavus in March, solving his immediate cash flow problems, but not much else. Gustavus needed to make a move and fast. After ensuring his Russian ally would in fact make war on Poland within the year, Gustavus felt confident to finally, at last, make a concrete move against the empire. He turned first to one of the Protestant electors, George William of Brandenburg. George William of Brandenburg was a great deal more belligerent than his Saxon counterpart. The proposals for creating a North German Protestant army under the Leipzig Manifesto had been largely the result of his prodding, though he couldn't simply throw his lot in with Gustavus, that would be treasonous. Indeed, despite his fighting talk, there was no reason, George William believed, that Gustavus would fare any better than his Danish counterpart. If Gustavus failed, after Brandenburg had thrown his lot in with him, then Brandenburg could become the next Palatinate, and George William would become the next Frederick V. Gustavus ingratiated himself towards the Brandenburg elector, but George William held firm, and Gustavus was making plans to quit and try his luck elsewhere when news arrived that Magdeburg had fallen on the 10th of May 1631, and that the city, which came under the possession of George William's uncle as it happened, had been horribly ravaged and its citizens massacred in droves a highly unusual activity for soldiers of the time. Plunder was of course commonplace during the Thirty Years' War, but Tilly's primary reason for besieging Magdeburg in the first place was to acquire the much-needed resources that Ferdinand II seemed unwilling to spare for him. His soldiers, though, enraged after difficult months of siege and hungry for plenty after long periods of very little, were let loose. My sources all point to the sack of Magdeburg, immortalised by countless paintings, pamphlets and commentaries of the time, as the moment when George William of Brandenburg made the decision to throw his lot in with the Swedes. Geoffrey Parker notes of this, quote, No less than 20 newspapers, 205 pamphlets, and 41 illustrated broadsheets describing the horror were published, circulated all over Europe, so that observers in London, Paris, Amsterdam, Stockholm, Rome and Madrid, as well as the princely courts of Germany, were made aware of how the Emperor treated his Protestant subjects. Unquestionably, the widely publicised fate of Magdeburg, just across Brandenburg's borders, and administered by the Elector's uncle, helped convince the reluctant George William to throw his lot in with Gustavus on the 21st of June, 1631. The pieces were beginning to fall into place for Gustavus, and his jigsaw was soon to look even more completed. Tilly was by now growing desperate, and since the sack of Magdeburg, his logistical problems had only gotten worse. His supposed master, Max of Bavaria, would not allow him freedom of action, because, under the terms of the Treaty of Fontainebleau between France and Bavaria, France's ally, Sweden, could not be directly attacked. Not for the first time, then, Tilly had to make a tough choice between witnessing the desertion of his men, or disobeying Max's orders. As it turned out, it was not much of a choice at all. In between the Swedes and Tilly lay Saxony, previously untouched because of the elector's neutrality. Tilly, seeing its resources and the state of his men, practically begged John George of Saxony for access to his resources. But John George replied with a comical note, Now I see that the Saxon sweetmeats, so long spared, are to be eaten, but you may find that they contain hard nuts which will break your teeth. Tilly also saw John George's portion of the Leipzig Manifesto army, 
raised as a result of that treaty and amounting to 18,000 men, as a threat to the balance of power and his security. John George of Saxony argued he was using the force merely to enforce his neutrality, but Tilly did not believe him, and thought it vital that he acquire Saxony's sweetmeats before his own force abandoned his command. Tilly invaded Saxony on the 3rd of September 1631, throwing John George's years of neutrality out the window, and practically flinging him into Gustavus's open arms. On the 15th of September, Tilly's troops had occupied Leipzig in good order, and acquired the rest and resources they need. But now, Tilly had bigger problems. Because of his invasion, he was now in enemy territory, and John George's forces went to link up with Gustavus. Sweden could now count on the cooperation of the Empire's two Protestant electorates. And now, he was ready to meet Tilly in battle. Breitenfeld is a nice little village located five miles northwest of the city of Leipzig. Nowadays, a monument within the village to Gustavus Adolphus is the only indication of the battle that was fought there on the 18th of September 1631 between Catholic Imperial forces led by Tilly and Swedish Saxon forces led by Gustavus Adolphus. It was the Swedes' first real opportunity to test his military mettle against someone who made a career out of crushing the dreams of those opposed to Ferdinand. Tilly's forces had never lost a battle before they met Gustavus's forces on that September morning. Indeed, Gustavus's forces didn't look like anything Tilly's men had seen before either. Gustavus, by rewriting the military rulebook, had done away with the Turkio formation of the Spanish that the Imperial forces themselves had adopted and had been using for decades, and instead used a tactic he had perfected from his campaigns against the Poles. Gustavus's new tactics were as follows. He elected to place six ranks of musket men, with five ranks of pikemen behind them. Pikes in this instance were 16 to 18 feet long, while the firearm of the era was the matchlock musket, only capable of firing one shot every minute, and quite cumbersome until the flintlock changed that. The point was, by placing them in this formation, the Swedes could let off more shots than their counterparts, and, because they protected their firing technique, whereby one soldier would kneel and fire, one would crouch and fire, and the other would sand and fire, the effect was a wall of lead followed by a mouth of pikes that enabled these men time to reload. Gustavus had additionally taught his men to reload while lying down. This meant that while the three lines fired and reloaded, the three lines behind them fired at an opportune time and were still under the protection of the pikemen. The volume of fire from the Swedes is in sharp contrast to the outdated Imperial model, whereby one line at a time would fire and reload, while pikemen were focused in the centre of a square that was not particularly mobile, but could withstand a variety of attacks. It worked excellently before, but the time had come to meet its match. Even in the cavalry Gustavus differed, where Imperial forces had relied on the tried and tested technique of arming their horsemen with either a form of pistol as we would recognise it, or a longer firearm, sometimes both, but always with the sword for the pursuit, as well as a bulletproof cuirass, Gustavus's cavalry looked and behaved differently. The Imperial tactics meant that a company of cavalry would trot to battle six lines deep, expend their firearms one line at a time, and then turn back into the formation and reload while on horseback enabling the next horseman to expend his firearm, and so on. 
Having gained experience fighting the Poles who used this formation, Gustavus had elected instead to ditch the expected motions of cavalry and instead perfect the charge, which would be effective because a company of musketmen would provide the cavalry with fire support, and of course musketmen could aim far more effectively on the ground. However, it was in the region of artillery that Gustavus truly triumphed. Having long since adopted artillery tactics of his own, and virtually created a new unit on the battlefield in the process, Gustavus's artillery were split into the light and heavy variety, the latter of which looked similar to the imperialists, but the former were revolutionary, and could be moved and reloaded far easier than the heavier version. It was with these new, improved and tested methods, in infantry, cavalry and artillery, that Gustavus met Tilly's undefeated army on the morning of the 18th of September. Having eyed each other up for a few hours, the battle began at noon. It opened with an exchange of artillery fire for two whole hours, which was shortly followed up by an imperial cavalry attack on both ends of Gustavus's line. The battle seemed to be going Tilly's way. The force of the attack shocked the Saxons, positioned on the left flank of Gustavus's line. Gustavus had relied on these men to hold the line, but at this sign of aggression, John George of Saxony led his two contingents of men away from the battle, despite the concerned pleas of Gustavus. The sight of their ally fleeing after the first attack can't have been particularly uplifting for the Swedes, but they knew what to do. Tilly ordered his forces to make a general attack on Gustavus's left flank, since they were now weakened there without the Saxons. Under the hail of musket fire and the roar of the cannons, Gustavus spread his forces out to cover the gap left by the Saxons, and was able to pour significant fire on the Imperials despite the Swedish numerical inferiority on that side, with the use of his newer tactics examined before. This made Tilly all the more eager to concentrate his forces at this flank, which was when Gustavus struck. What had begun as two lines parallel to one another now looked more like a top-heavy capital T. As Tilly tried to position his forces to pour onto the Swedes' left flank and rout it. By doing this, he exposed his own left flank, and Gustavus personally led the charge against it, while his own troops on his left flank, not waiting for Tilly's forces to attack them in strength, attacked the Imperials themselves. Attacked on all sides, the Imperials lost their artillery in the centre to Gustavus's charge, and then came under fire from their own guns. Gustavus's artillery and combined musketmen formations meant that Tilly's own cavalry could not make any headway or utilise their mobility. They were cut down and many fled from these alien tactics. With his centre crumbling from a combined artillery barrage, Tilly tried to move to combat the threat. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tools. Tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But this only caused more disorder, and Gustavus completely enveloped his left flank. The unwieldy Catholic infantry was trapped in a crossfire of grazing artillery balls, which were aimed to bounce and careen into the rank and files between knee and shoulder height killing and wounding dozens with each ball. With these guns cutting into one end of Tilly's line, and the Swedish centre showing no signs of breaking, the exchange of gunfire soon wore down the Imperial troops, and their lines ground to a halt against Gustavus's infantry. As Tilly came to terms with this development, combined cannon and musket fire decimated his men, so that by the time he had marched in person to orchestrate a counter-attack, he had too few men left. After being wounded twice, and still unable to make headway or escape the trap he was now in, he knew the battle was lost. Tilly, for the first time, had lost to a Protestant force. The Catholic League, for the first time, had lost a battle. And the Protestants, now under the champion, Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, had defeated the Habsburgs for the first time in the war. Albrecht of Wallenstein had been watching the unfolding events of the war with unease. Since his dismissal in September 1630, he had kept up with events in the Empire via his intelligence network, residing in his Bohemian household. For Wallenstein, the Swedish victory had come as a sharp shock. Geoff Mortimer in his book, Wallenstein, The Enigma of the Thirty Years' War, notes Wallenstein's apprehension before the Battle of Breitenfeld turned everything on its head. Quote, Wallenstein may initially have felt that his return was not necessary in order to contain the Swedish threat. Gustavus was a formidable general, but he had suffered his defeats, whereas Tilly had never lost a battle in a lifetime of campaigning. He also still had a large and battle-hardened army, with the Catholic League Corps supplemented by units returning from Italy, whereas although the Swedes had increasing numbers, including a supply of seasoned troops, many of these regiments were newly formed and far from fully prepared for a major contest of arms. End quote. Of course, we know what Tilly did with these immediate advantages. In one of his many mistakes of 1631, he besieged Magdeburg, sacked it, and then invaded Saxony and took its capital Leipzig, turning the Saxons against the Emperor in the process. While Tilly remained uncharacteristically ineffectual and non-committal for the beginning of 1631, Wallenstein's own lands were suffering. As Mortimer notes, Quote, the course of the war also affected Wallenstein personally. First to go was Mecklenburg, most of which had fallen to the Swedes anyway by May 1631, while Gustavus presided over a triumphant return of the previous dukes in July. The resulting loss of income further strained Wallenstein's resources, 
and his correspondence with his officials show him concerning himself anxiously with sums of money which he previously would scarcely have noticed. End quote. Wallenstein was far from looking forward to returning to his thankless position, knowing full well that, in many ways, the situation had gotten worse, not better, and that his political enemies were just as short-sighted and jealous as before. The imperial position rapidly collapsed after the loss in September, though, and the subsequent invasion of the empire's lands provided Wallenstein with a greater impetus to move, for he feared that even more of his own duchies would be seized. But they also made Ferdinand's court more determined to reappoint him Generalissimo once again. Wallenstein was not, however, as doubled over with panic as his main rival, Maximilian of Bavaria, was. At every phase in the campaign, Gustavus had moved with surprising restraint and foresight. He did not simply invade the empire, as is often believed. Instead, he ensured strategically that his security was guaranteed. He didn't move into the empire until he was sure Russia would occupy Poland's attention. He didn't really move from his Pomeranian position until French money and cooperation were assured by a treaty in January 1631. And he didn't make military moves against the empire until he was sure that Saxony and Brandenburg were his allies. His restraint had paid off, but after Breitenfeld, Gustavus seems to have sensed the inherent weakness of the empire and made the decision to fulfil the nightmare envisioned by Wallenstein all the way back in 1625. His progress after Breitenfeld is mesmerising, all the more so because it was an example of how quickly and completely the fortunes of the Thirty Years' War had turned against the Habsburgs. Geoff Mortimer tells us that Gustavus's subsequent manoeuvres following the Crussian victory at Breitenfeld not only sent shockwaves throughout the HRE, but also scared the living daylights out of Maximilian of Bavaria. Quote, After Breitenfeld, Maximilian's anxiety turned to panic, and he sought to go yet further in the attempt to preserve his lands from Swedish attack. With Gustavus virtually on his borders, and Tilly, distraught after his defeat, bereft of ideas as to how he was to be contained, a separate peace with Sweden and withdrawal into neutrality seemed his only hope. A forlorn hope. Gustavus, rightly perceiving Maximilian as one of the principal opponents of the Protestant religion and a prime mover behind the Edict of Restitution, was not inclined to sympathy. Despite French mediation, he was inclined to offer him nothing better than virtual surrender, a principal condition of which was the reduction of the Catholic League army to a mere garrison force, a fraction of its fighting size. This was scarcely a serious offer, as it would have left Bavaria defenceless and dependent on dubious Swedish goodwill and ineffectual French influence. Even though intercepted letters had revealed to Vienna Maximilian's attempt at what amounted to desertion of the imperial cause, by early 1632 he had no choice but to creep back, vociferously asserting his loyalty to the emperor and begging for assistance from Wallenstein's new army against the coming Swedish storm. End quote. Gustavus's victories had drawn the attention of another figure too. Frederick V of the Palatinate had been watching the unfolding events of the Swedish campaign with a growing sense of hope. He began to see Gustavus's successes and progress as a divine sign from God, that this Swede would restore him to his Palatinate. After the victory at Breitenfeld, Freddy became more anxious to get in real contact with Gustavus after months of a relatively uneventful relationship which, albeit friendly, didn't achieve much for Freddy back in his Dutch exile. 
Though Gustavus had shattered imperial defence in the north of the empire, he still had two concerns. The first being Spanish garrisons in the Palatinate, and the second being the clear unreliability of his own Saxon allies. Thus, he elected to split his forces, sending the Saxon forces towards Bohemia and Cilicia, while he would move on the wealthy, untouched parts of the empire, thus far unspoiled by the ravages of war. He moved to Franconia and along the Rhine into the empire's heartland, persuading those Protestant princes as he went to join his cause, which many, albeit often reluctantly, did. He captured Würzburg in October 1631 and moved out from it in November. Sweeping across the heartlands, he took Frankfurt and in the process made history as the first foreign conqueror ever to do so. Continuing his march across the Palatinate and making Freddy V jump for joy in the process, Gustavus captured Oppenheim and Worms before rounding off his campaign with the capture of the Electorate of Mainz, where he would spend Christmas 1631. Meanwhile, his Saxon ally had shattered expectations too and ignited the hopes of the Bohemian exiles when they retook Prague from the Imperials on November 15th, restoring exiles like Thurn, who had hovered around the Habsburg enemy camps until they had finally managed, 11 years later, to return home. The Bohemian Revolt and its defenestration must have seemed like a distant memory, but indeed things were about to change even more rapidly, as Gustavus positioned himself to strike even further in 1632 and as Wallenstein remained unable to yet attach himself to the imperial forces and relieve Tilly. The Swedish success being nothing short of groundbreaking, Protestant allies began to flock to Gustavus's banner like never before. But there were some issues. The electors of Trier and Cologne, rather than see their lands invaded and sacked, placed themselves under the protection of the French. This meant that the Spanish would have a hard time operating in the area, especially now that the Swedes had occupied much of the Rhine and reduced their mobility. But this had the knock-on effect of bringing the Dutch closer to the Swedes, where before they had only offered limited subsidies. This is examined by David Milland. Quote, Gustavus's occupation of the Rhineland was a disaster for Spain, which the Dutch were quick to recognise by offering subsidies to Sweden. Richelieu was in two minds about the situation. Gustavus was acting wholly independently of French interests, and French troops had been rushed into Alsace to save it from the Swedes. This, on the other hand, was an advantage, since it established French power in an area hitherto dominated by Spain. The Archbishop electors of Trier and Cologne, moreover, turned in despair to Louis XIII rather than Philip IV for protection. End quote. The Protestant and Catholic alliance that would materialise in 1635 and would endure for the remainder of the war was developing here, even though the French were still not really at war with anyone, and had thus far only waged war with money, propping up both the Swedes and the Dutch. Podcast footnote. The general attitude of the time was that, for Spain and France for example, to actually be at war officially, you had to declare it against the country as a whole. It wasn't enough to skirmish against one another within a contested sphere of influence, unless of course things escalated to a certain point. This explains how events in Italy, for example, put everyone on edge, but didn't actually constitute an actual state of war between France and the Habsburgs. End podcast footnote. Events were about to move very fast. 
as Frederick V of the Palatinate left his Dutch exile for the last time. No doubt the Dutch were at least a little happy to see the decade-long freeloader go. Frederick V kissed his wife goodbye in late January 1632. Full of dreams that his decade-long ordeal would be over soon and that his right position and that his rightful position would be restored by the King of Sweden. He would never see his family again. He would never see his family again. Freddy reached Gustavus's camp in late February, just after Gustavus had taken the town of Kursnak in the Palatine, having personally directed the siege. Though the reception was warm between the two, and they feasted along with the other princes, Frederick seemed uncharacteristically suspicious of Gustavus's intentions. It is likely that he may have gotten wind of the fact that, not that Gustavus was going to place Freddy's Palatinate as a kind of vassal state after the war, as some historians have erroneously asserted, but that Gustavus was very happy to use him to further his own cause and grant his case legitimacy as he marched throughout the empire. Brennan Purcell, in his book The Winter King, notes on the terms of their partnership. Quote, In mid-March, Frederick was handed the terms that he found very high, but not outlandish. The Swedish king demanded freedom of worship for Lutherans in the Palatinate, the right to occupy all conquered fortresses for as long as the war would last, and a promise from Frederick that he, like the rest of the princes, should acknowledge Gustavus's absolute directory, and depend not on any other king, prince, body or state, but only upon his majesty. Only the first term was constitutionally problematic, because it infringed on Frederick's privilege of whose land his religion. The second and third terms were provisions for guaranteeing the safety of the Swedish military position for the duration of the war. Gustavus had not meant to force Frederick to dissolve his obligation to the Emperor and the Empire, not that he had ever been an obedient vassal of Ferdinand II, and make him a Swedish dependent. Gustavus did want to make sure that Frederick would make no rival arrangements for his restitution with England, France or the Dutch that might undermine Swedish authority. Gustavus did not demand absolute authority from Frederick in settling a peace, but expected him to first assist the Swedish military effort and then be a good ally after the war's end. end quote. Whatever his plans, Gustavus did intend to restore Freddy to his palatine, though he knew that in order to do this, he would first have to defeat Tilly and his army, reinforced by Maximilian. Then the Swedes could march into Bavaria proper. This had been a course made possible by Maximilian's own anxiety. He couldn't stand back as the Swedes marched through the Upper Palatinate, lands which were meant to be his, as per the terms of the deals he had made with Ferdinand years before. Gustavus initially had been advised against attacking Max, since the Treaty Bavaria and France had signed meant that, paradoxically, Bavaria was a neutral player in the Empire. Though Gustavus certainly scoffed at the legitimacy of this stance, and may have harboured something of a grudge against France for creating the treaty, it would be solved by Max's own miscalculations. Just like Tilly before him in 1631, when he forced the Saxons into a Swedish alliance, Max would absolve the French of their agreements by attacking the Swedes first in March 1632. It was only a small engagement, but Gustavus was able to point to it as the moment when the Franco-Bavarian Treaty was violated. Richelieu agreed, and Max was then left to face the full force of Gustavus's plans, which had been adapted in March 1632 especially to accommodate the acquisition of Bavaria, a Bavaria which was no longer politically protected. Max thus moved to link up with Tilly, 
as Gustavus advanced at a leisurely pace and entered Nuremberg in early April. By the 13th of April, the two enemies were lined up in battle formation, facing each other across a river, near a small Bavarian town called Rain. While Gustavus sent Finnish cavalry forces 10 kilometers down south to cross the river, he led an extremely daring frontal assault against the Catholic position, which succeeded in first taking a small island within the river, and then mortally wounding Tilly. Moved to act because of the rumours regarding Wallenstein's reinforcements, which Gustavus did not know the status of, the Swedish king was perhaps more daring than he should have been here, in attacking a well-defended position. His casualties reflect this fact, but what was important was that Maximilian, the non-soldier, retreated that evening from the battle in fear of a nighttime Swedish river assault. The Catholics had lost perhaps 1,000 more men than Gustavus, but the way to Bavaria was now open. I find Maximilian to be one of the most intriguing characters of this narrative. The way in which he switches his loyalties from the Emperor to the French in order to protect himself, and then he goes from being a major rival to Wallenstein to ingratiating himself towards the Bohemian in order to acquire his assistance, I really feel this demonstrates the human aspect of the Thirty Years' War. Maximilian, though we may not necessarily like him, was looking out for number one. He seems to have had not one heroic bone in his body, and had been content over the previous years to hoard all the advantages of the war for himself. When it came time to defend his acquisitions, he then elected to flee rather than stick by the emperor who had made these acquisitions possible. Not to mention his approval of the Edict of Restitution, which turned the Protestants against Ferdinand even further. While his pressure to dismiss Wallenstein owing to personal jealousy while the empire was under foreign threat is one of the clearest examples of his short-sightedness and foolishness. The years of Gustavus's campaigns can be seen as something of a just reward for Maximilian, because he got to discover what it felt like to have your lands ravaged and your future made uncertain. However, we should remember that Max was not the only one. Though I may have presented the Swedes thus far in a somewhat favourable light, they were in many ways the worst invader the Empire had ever seen. The plunder and devastation caused by the Swedes and their allies set the Empire way back in time and did irreparable damage, and is one of the reasons why the Thirty Years' War still forms part of the national German consciousness. The difficult choices many minor princes were given, between siding with Gustavus and granting him your lands after not really acquainting yourself with him very well, in the hope that he wouldn't totally ruin you and then get defeated a la Denmark and place you again at the Habsburg mercy, or side with Ferdinand and hope to be ignored by the Swedes, these were choices forced upon the vast majority of the lands Gustavus moved through. Often it was due to necessity and I do not buy the argument that the Swedes were worse plunderers because they came from Sweden, and in Sweden at that time they didn't even have minor luxuries, etc, etc. For the record, the Swedes have been compared to the Mongolian soldiers who invaded Germany as a contingent of the Soviets near the close of the Second World War. These Mongolian soldiers, having never seen electricity, took light bulbs from wall fittings and put them in their pockets to bring home and show their families. The Swedes were not like that, but what we should remember is that everyone plundered the Empire's lands terribly. Especially as the armies swelled to sizes they never should have reached in the first place, and as their commanders, be they Gustavus, Wallenstein or Tilly, began to run out of ways to pay, supply and house them.
Gustavus moved into Bavaria with Frederick V among the army's ranks, taking Munich after Max had grabbed his treasury and documents and vamoosed just in time. Geoffrey Parker provides a great narration of the events. Quote, With Tilly dead and his army routed, there was now nothing to stop the plundering of Maximilian's beloved duchy. Many towns, even 40 and 50 miles away, made haste to surrender to the victors. Many more were pillaged, only a few places escaped. Your grace would no longer recognise poor Bavaria, Maximilian wrote to his brother, the Elector of Cologne. Such cruelty has been unheard of in this war. Gustavus and Frederick held a triumphal entry into Munich on the 17th of May 1632, reviewed their victorious troops, played tennis together in the ducal courts, surveyed the ducal art collection, and plundered it as thoroughly as the Bavarians had plundered Heidelberg ten years before. They also captured over 100 pieces of artillery, much of it formerly belonging to Frederick and his allies. Maximilian was unable to return to his beloved capital for three full years. End quote. The Habsburgs appeared doomed. Not only had Gustavus succeeded when it was thought not possible, he had overturned the apple cart of the HRE ten times over, invading thus far untouched lands and sending their Catholic rulers running for cover. He had united Protestant Germany under his banner, and, although not everyone joined him as enthusiastically as one would expect, he still could command the loyalty of the vast majority of the northern part of Germany. As far as I know, such control by a foreign power of the HRE is unprecedented, and his capture of Frankfurt is a testament to this. Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden was at the high point of his lifetime. He had the empire held to ransom. He had evicted the perpetrators of the Edict of Restitution, Bar Ferdinand himself of course. He had isolated the Spanish and routed the Bavarians. He had the promise of French and Dutch money on a regular basis, and his military allies in Saxony and Brandenburg were on side. Gustavus's success went hand in glove with the success of his allies. Having all but trounced the pacifist arguments within the Estates General, Frederick Henry of the Dutch Republic went on to build such immense pressure against the Spanish Netherlands that Philip IV of Spain almost lost control. Following the victories of the late 1620s, the Dutch now actively took the fight to the beleaguered Spanish, who were simultaneously trying to answer the Swedish threat to their portion of the occupied Palatinate. Geoffrey Parker explains just how connected the campaigns were. Quote, in June 1632, the Dutch army captured, in rapid succession, Venlo, Roermond, Stralen and Sittard, forcing the recall of the Spanish relief army sent to defend the Palatinate against the Swedish onslaught. But it was not enough to prevent the Dutch army from laying siege to the great fortress of Maastricht, commanding all communications between Brussels and the Catholic party of Westphalia. At this point, a small group of Netherlands nobles, led by Count Henry van der Berg, fled to join the Dutch army in Limburg and called upon their compatriots to throw off the Spanish yoke. Nobody stirred, save the Dutch, who carried their siege of Maastricht to a successful conclusion on the 23rd of August, in spite of the desperate assault of an imperial relief army on the siege works less than a week before. Somewhat shaken by these developments, a second group of conspirators, who had intended to call in the French, decided not to act. Spanish rule over the South Netherlands was thus, almost miraculously, preserved, but it was some time before Brussels could again come to the aid of Vienna. End quote. 
Italy was also unable to assist Ferdinand, as was the Pope, the former pleading famine and plague which had swept the north of the country, the latter pleading political and material shortcomings. A Munich courtier wrote in April 1632, just as the Swedes were marching unchallenged into Bavaria, We cry, help, help, but there is nobody there. But help was on the way for the imperial cause. Not for the first time, Ferdinand was putting the final ounces of his hope in Albrecht of Wallenstein. The Habsburg cause could not survive another Breitenfeld, or even another Battle of Rain. Wallenstein had to perform a miracle, and he set about attempting to create one in the beginning of 1632 by raising an army to send against the invaders. How he raised the men was a miracle in itself, but I won't lament on its details, save to say that it was, obviously, only possible by stretching the limits of the imperial coffers to beyond a minus figure, to the extent that Wallenstein commented grimly, My financial net has become a chasm of sorrow. If a victory is not forthcoming, and if the opportunity to replenish my financial reserves does not follow, then the results will be the ruin of me. He had been spurred to return by a combination of factors. Foremost in his mind was the threat of becoming a landless refugee yet again, as he had during the Bohemian Revolt of 1618-19. He immediately set to the task of combating Gustavus, by attacking his weak spot in Bohemia, where his Saxon ally was holed up. He sent his lieutenants to Bohemia, and they succeeded in driving the timid Saxons back, while Wallenstein himself was fortified cautiously in the medieval castle known as the Alta Vest, just outside Nuremberg. Wallenstein's action here drew Gustavus to besiege him for two miserable months, from August to October 1632, as the lands around the fortress were ravaged beyond recognition, eventually forcing Gustavus to withdraw northwest into the Palatinate, having lost Bohemia from the retreating Saxons, and many men over that period of time. Dispirited and depleted, Gustavus appeared unable to help the elector of Saxony John George, while Wallenstein moved northeast into his lands and took his capital Leipzig on the 1st of November. It appeared as though Wallenstein was in fact delivering the miracle that had been expected of him, but Gustavus was not done yet. He waited for Wallenstein to slip up, and the Generalissimo uncharacteristically did so, by assuming that, after taking Leipzig, that the campaigning season was over. Wallenstein split his forces, so that his previously far larger force than Gustavus's was now technically equal in size to the Swedes. Unseasonably wintry weather suggested that campaigning was impossible, but Gustavus thrived on doing crazy things and somehow pulling it out of the bag, and he aimed to repeat this tactic again by challenging Wallenstein's force, which was now, as a result of Wallenstein's mistake, equal in size to his own. Joff Mortimer notes the mistake of Wallenstein. Quote, at this point, so historians have commonly stated, Wallenstein concluded that Gustavus would do no more that year, and he intended to winter in Lutzen. Hence, he immediately started to disperse his own men into their winter quarters, thus giving the king the opportunity to attack his remaining forces there shortly afterwards. These writers do not, however, offer any credible explanation as to why the habitually cautious Wallenstein should have made such a careless mistake. The fact is, he did not as although he was undoubtedly planning his winter dispositions, both these and more immediate moves he made were calculated responses to the military situation. Albeit in doing so, he made a near-fatal error. End quote. 
Wallenstein was merely acting as the circumstances of the time allowed. He did not have the benefit of hindsight to know that Gustavus would attack him in the sleet and frost once he dispatched men for their winter hibernations. However, one could point out that Gustavus had made a career out of doing the unexpected, seen in his frontal attacks on fortresses and his tendency to go through numerous horses during a battle. Perhaps Wallenstein should have expected Gustavus to brave the elements in order to attack him, but the fact is that he didn't, and because of it, we had the Battle of Lutzen to pour over. Wallenstein also expected Gustavus to march on Hal, a Protestant fortress a day's march away, and so he sent scouts to observe Gustavus's force to see if he would make this move. While Wallenstein sent forces to capture the fortress of Hal before the Swedes, Gustavus saw these troops leaving, and, believing the opportunity was ripe, moved to exploit it. However, even now Gustavus moved cautiously, and he did not actually want a battle, but instead wanted to link up with his allies in the north. Wallenstein had placed units all over the place, though, so as to catch Gustavus if he did move. Gustavus ran into one of these units, and while it held him back, he elected to roll the dice and attack Wallenstein. Thus, though neither Wallenstein nor Gustavus actually had it as their plan A, the Battle of Lutzen commenced on the 16th of November. From the beginning, it was a chaotic affair. Smoke rose from the small town nearby, as it had been apparently set ablaze, adding to the general disorientation of all involved. Despite numerous rallies and repeated charges, and despite the fact that Wallenstein's artillery was captured by Gustavus's cavalry, nobody broke and fled this time. So even were both armies that they fought each other to a bloody standstill, and by the evening both would retreat to their respective safe areas. Wallenstein camped back at the town of Lutzen, while the Swedes returned to the small town of Naumburg. The only significant aspect of this inconclusive battle was the fact that the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, was not among those returning to Naumburg. Accounts differ so radically as to what exactly happened and how he was killed that were reduced to mere speculation, but what we do know is that the Swedish king and leader of the Protestant force that had swept Germany was dead. Lutzen would have been but a footnote in the list of engagements had it not been for that single casualty, one of so many from the 30,000 or so troops engaged in battle that day, but by far the most politically, strategically and symbolically important. Whether his soldiers knew about his death or not until the end of the battle is unlikely, considering the effect it would have had on morale. Certainly, European leaders scarcely could believe that the Swede was dead until they had to face the facts at the end of the month. Gustavus Adolphus, just over two decades since his reign began, had transformed utterly the power balance in Europe. He had ended the Habsburgs' tide of victory and turned the tables completely against them with a few shattering victories. He had terrified his foes, ignited the passions of his allies, and would intrigue for centuries other statesmen and people across the world. Sweden's council recognised that its king's rule was a once-in-an-empire event, posthumously granting him the title of The Great in the months following his death. His close confidant and minister, Axel Oxenstierna, if you remember Ax Ox from our earlier episodes, would take the reins of the Swedish government and effectively rule it until Gustavus's sole heir, his daughter Christina, came of age. Just as the council recognised the contributions of their incredible king, so too did the people of Sweden. 
Please let me know if this is fantastically incorrect, my Swedish listeners, but there is apparently a Gustavus Adolphus Day every 6th of November, in which Swedes eat Gustavus Adolphus pastries, which I'm told can be any form of cake so long as it bears Gustavus's likeness, as they remember as a country how their small regional kingdom was taken from the doldrums and elevated to a world power status in the blink of an eye. Sweden's empire and world power status would last only until the early 18th century. But the legacy and legend of its greatest king, Gustavus Adolphus, was immortal. Europe witnessed the death of another key figure in 1632. The Thirty Years' War had, up to this point, always had the rivalry and arguments of Ferdinand II and Frederick V of the Palatinate in the background. This, of course, was changing as the Thirty Years' War was beginning to transform from a religiously inspired war into a power-based, politically charged one. Just as before, it had morphed from a bohemian civil conflict into the religious empire-wide conflict we had covered in our previous episodes. On the 30th of November, 1632, Frederick V of the Palatinate was overcome by a sudden fever and died while he travelled between his homelands in the Upper Palatine back to the Swedes to better negotiate his position. The passing of so instrumental a figure in the Thirty Years' War is of course significant. Just as the entire war is becoming more political, the religious figures and the central original argument for its inception were disappearing. In 1635 this will be vindicated by the emergence of a three-way power alliance bloc between the Dutch, the Swedes and the French. That is the history we know. What is often forgotten, and what I found myself dwelling on, is the story of Frederick's wife. Elizabeth had been with Frederick since his inception as King of Bohemia. She had seen his lowest ebb, his greatest moments of personal joy and triumph. She had stayed by his side during his troubled days in their Dutch exile. Their marriage produced numerous children, and the letters Frederick sent back to Liz wherever he was always convey that he missed his wife and children terribly. His unshakable faith in God may be hard to relate to nowadays, but it is important not to portray him as a fool because of it. His faith fed his courage, which gave him strength during his hardest times, and he would have many hard times. His last words to his wife, which were delivered through a letter, express how much he missed her. The time here hangs on me heavily because nothing is happening. I find nothing so troublesome as having so little news from you. As it turned out, his parcel of letters had been lost in the frantic European Postal Service at the time, and his wife's reply, heartbreakingly, only reached his residence after his death. Within it, she described the children as impatiently awaiting your safe return, but noting that nobody is more eager than I to experience it. It reminds us of the human aspect of the war, and that's why I left this bit until last. Most people would know the story of Gustavus Adolphus. Most people would know that he put Sweden on the map, and so they should, it's an awesome story. But few, if anyone, know the story of Frederick V of the Palatine, the anguish he experienced, the troubles he faced, or the victories he accomplished. Like so many others, Frederick's story is one which is lost to the wider, more popular history unless you actively look for it. The day before his death, it was clear that only his wife was on his mind. 
Having no notion that within two days he would be dead, Frederick was speaking with a German emissary from another principality, when the emissary commented on how much he hoped to see Elizabeth in Germany soon. Frederick replied, according to the emissary, but no one more than me. While the emissary later noted privately that, he, Frederick, only possesses a certain light behind his eyes when talking of his wife. Neither campaigns nor restitution excite him as much as the thoughts of her. News of Frederick's death utterly broke Elizabeth. She confided to her brother Charles, the King of England, that, I am the most wretched creature that ever lived in this world, and this I shall ever be, having lost the best friend that I have ever had, in whom was all my delight. Brennan Purcell provides what I feel is a fitting eulogy. Quote, Several Dutch pamphleteers praised Frederick posthumously as a great and valiant king. Some of the rhetoric that bewailed the death of the two kings spoke of the tragic loss to Protestantism of her two greatest leaders. The combination, however, exemplified Protestantism's divisions as much as its unity. One king had been a Lutheran war hero, obsessed with the dream of total victory, who had come very close to fulfilling it. The other had been a Calvinist war victim, a mere pretender, obsessed with his own honour and conscience, always unwilling to accept his total defeat, even though he always seemed incapable of achieving victory. End quote. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. In this part of our 30 years special, we examined the rise and rise again of Sweden's greatest export, and I feel it's only fitting we end the episode here. So I hope you enjoyed this two-parter, and that you'll join me as we continue the story next time into the rest of the 1630s, as Sweden tries to imagine life without Gustavus, and the Thirty Years' War tries to imagine life without Frederick V. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.65. Thanks! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.